Hello everyone and welcome to the 51st episode of Yes Sir, Hater. My name is Mark and as usual I am with... Yeah, you're still with me, Dennis, in Jersey Channel Islands, UK. Right, so how's your week been then? Yeah, okay. Um, weather's taken a turn for um, the worse. We've probably dropped about 10 degrees, it feels that way. So the winter is upon us, but the good news is that I'll be in Asia in January and February. So all is good. Looking forward to that. Excellent. I think we look forward to welcoming you back to sunny Singapore. You would love it because the weather here is extremely hot and with the past few weeks of rain. It's kind of weird right now, the weather. I'm not sure why, but uh, I think we are heading into uh, what I would call autumn uh, and soon we will see more rain. But uh, things are also picking up because this is the F1 or Formula 1 weekend uh, and it's the night race in Singapore, the only one in the world and things are getting busy. So do you really follow the F1 then? No, not a sport I... Uh like at all uh noisy uh it just seems to me that the person in pole position with the best car tends to win unless there's a bit of a crash um no you could give me free tickets in pole position no pun intended uh not my cup of tea right okay uh maybe i might change your mind if i give you some tickets to the paddock club where you sit in air-conditioned comfort drink some champagne have some caviar and watch everybody do all the heavy lifting. <laughs> no, not really, because um, one is I'm not really that keen on champagne or caviar, funny enough. I'd rather my favourite drink in the world, which you know is Baron's Beer. And that is only available in Singapore. One cannot even get it on um, eBay or whatever. Um, yep. It's unique to Singapore. I do promote it. In fact, I think the company should give me a franchise. Yeah, maybe we should explore it. <laughs> yeah, I might do that when I'm over. Yeah. Okay. So let's launch into get let's get back to the serious stuff for the fifty first episode. In the previous episode, we shared a little bit of our stories and look back of how evidence based creative teaching has essentially uh, changed our teaching lives. I would say. So this time around, we are back to regular programming. And uh, I thought this was going to be an interesting topic uh, because I love the title that uh, you, you came up with. Uh, and I'm going to uh, repeat it now. The title is, Is Active Learning Always Active? So let me give you a bit of, uh, let me give the listeners a bit of uh, context. And then maybe we'll just jump straight into the discussion. Because I think uh, we have had this conversation before. And I think it is worth repeating uh, to maybe demystify a little bit what active learning means uh, so that our listeners get a better idea of uh, what does that mean in their own practice. Sound good? Yeah, let's go. Okay. So the term active learning has been around for many decades uh, and is seen as a much better alternative than direct instruction and more traditional modes of learning, uh, which unfortunately is seen as or referred to as passive learning. Uh, and we have even begun to change the words teaching with facilitation because teaching tends to connote a bit more one way as opposed to facilitation which tends to involve more people. I think we have looked at uh, some other people making comments like, oh, teachers today are no more teachers. They are, they are no more the sage on the stage. They are the guide on the side and they must do active learning. Uh, and I know that we have talked a little bit of uh, uh, using activities, not just for activity's sake, 
but it has got to be meaningful. But I think today we are going to dive a little bit deeper. So what we want to do is really take a closer look at what active learning is in terms of specific teaching and learning methods uh, and to what extent it is always active uh, in a sense of activating the mind or the thinking pro processes which we have talked about is essentially the learning process. Okay, so let's start with a bit of background to the development of active learning uh, and what exactly is, or why is everybody so hyped up about it that if you say you don't practice it that much or if you do and then you say, I still also adopt some traditional methods, people tend to lose their minds. So why or what are some of its supposed benefits? Uh, and then can you kick us off? Yeah, I think it's important to take some historical perspective because yeah. um, if we look at teaching over the last four or five decades, um, <laughs> sadly, I've been around that long to, to see so much of the <laughs> reframing of teaching. And if we go back to um, the days I was at school, before your time, Mark, before you pipe in and so say you weren't born then, um, it was very much, when we say teacher-centred, um, I don't really like that term and we'll see why. But what it was then is the teacher taught literally all the time. And yep. would go into a class and the teacher would say, sit down, uh, get ready for take note. And they'd dictate basically for the old lesson. One or two may say at the end of the lesson something like, any questions? And within about a second, Paul say, no, that's good. And off you went to the next lesson. And um, that's the method that is typically seen as the traditional method or even referred to as direct instruction. And it certainly is not an effective method. Um, right. It's certainly the case that we do want students to be actively involved in the learning process. And we're going to unpack that, you know, through our own stories and in conversation as the podcast develops. Um, I'll certainly agree um, with a quote, um, and it's one that's referred to in many textbooks. It's by Chickering and Gamston. Yeah. And they're right when they say that learning is not a spectator sport. Well, yeah, um, <laughs> going through that one a little bit, but students don't learn much, according to them, by just sitting in class, listening to teachers, memorizing prepackaged assignments, and spitting out answers. They must talk about what they're learning, write about it, relate it to past experiences, apply it to their daily lives. They must make what they learn part of themselves. Now, that, that's all good. I mean, we do want students to be active in the sense that they're talking, that they're applying it, they're writing it. These are all ways in which you build memory, you develop understanding, etc., etc. But when they say you don't learn much by listening to someone, um, this is a bit strange because I'll be honest with you, when I listen to some of the best speakers in not just in educational fields, but other fields, yep. I find that I'm very active. And when we talk about activity, um, it's a general thing, isn't it? Are we supposed to be jumping up and down and saying rah, 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 and um, isn't learning great? And isn't everybody wonderful? You know, a kind of almost if everybody's shouting and doing something visible, um, physical, then that's activity. And in fact, just to add to that, you may remember there was a fad, maybe a started a couple of decades ago but persisted for a while it was called brain gym 
and we have pauses in the lesson. We have a few little tests and games and people get up and bend over and kind of do a few exercises. And that was seen as a very good refresher and it created a bit of activity. The, the evidence don't even support that that has any educational use at all. And it seems to have died out, fortunately, because I'll be honest about it. I hated doing it and I hated having to, not hated, it's a strong word, but I didn't see much value in um, kind of uh, doing it as a teacher, getting students doing it. What I did see is useful is getting students to uh, talk to each other, to discuss a concept, um, to come up with some questions, that kind of thing, but not um, simply um, activity for activity's sake. So going back to this listening business, if you're listening and you are interesting and the topic seems relevant, then what's active is your cognitive processes and that's what builds the learning process not jumping around or doing some activity of sticking post-its on the wall necessarily um, or um, building a bridge uh, with paper clips it's how to what extent does instruction and i don't care whether you call it teaching or facilitation or training all of those things are about helping students people in in that situation to learn so um i don't like this notion that if students are um making some kind of noise or moving around the classroom that this constitutes um active learning to me it may equally be a waste of time equally if students are listening for a period of time and we don't want them to be talking for long periods but listening for 10 or 15 minutes to interesting content that's illustrated with examples and stories which we used last week um that's probably more active learning that's more of active learning than a lot of what sometimes masquerades as active learning so that that gives you a frame from my perspective Right. So I, I want to unpack what you say when things uh, masquerade as uh, active learning. But I just want, to, before we do that, I want to point out a few things that you mentioned. So by nature, I, I do personally like the Chickering and Gamson quote, uh, especially the first line. Uh, learning is not a spectator sport. Now, I do believe what you said is some form of active learning. It's just that we, it refers to maybe the complex cognitive processes that students deploy to learn what is actually being said. So uh, I, I, I do believe that uh, if students are actively thinking about what is said, breaking down what the person is saying, connecting it to their own prior experiences, and trying or formulating you know, deep thinking processes like asking further questions, then by nature in itself, that is some form of active learning. I think the problem really happens is are our students mature enough to engage the important cognitive processes for it to be active? Yeah, that's a very good point because to say to students, I want you to do this and do some thinking. Well, yeah. if they're not actually familiar with what cognitive processes are involved in thinking things like analyzing and also what analyzing means it's about thinking about a system subsystems parts the relationships of parts to a system and if something goes wrong uh, in that system how it connects to other parts of the system and the same thing with other critical thinking skills which are the ones that are most important in school um 
it's not so essential. And in fact, Willingham, actually, Daniel Willingham, um, um, doesn't see that much merit of um, getting school students to try to be creative whilst creative thinking activities might generate some motivation. The emphasis should be more on students acquiring solid factual knowledge. And as we know, that requires engagement with the content, particularly the key concepts, and doing critical thinking, which would be analysing, comparing and contrasting, um, making inference and interpretations, and evaluating um, the various ways in which we might solve problems. So um, that's a, a really important point. If students don't have direct instruction initially uh, on what thinking is and what good thinking is Precisely. and what the, 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 the processes, the heuristics of good thinking, um, you can give them a interesting activity to do, but it's going to be done very superficially. So we have students doing activities that look like problem solving, that look like authentic real life tasks but in fact all they're doing is skipping over it so they're kind of doing it and they're putting bits of stuff together perhaps cutting and pasting and they come up with something that they think is okay because the teacher said oh well done that's good you know you've you've been actively involved that um i don't see that as um particularly useful um, yeah yeah so I, th I think I think you 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 hit the nail on the head. So uh, I think that's where uh, I think some uh, masquerades or misconceptions arise, uh, such as you know everybody tends to give lectures a bad uh, uh, a bad rap uh, and immediately label it as a passive experience for learners. Uh, and I think uh, you have shared this quote with me, which I particularly like. Uh, from John Hattie and Yates in 2004. Uh, and I'm going to read a quote in its entirety and we'll try and unpack this, which is, I think, a brilliant one. So, and I quote, within the world of psychology, there is no such thing as passive learning unless this term implies learning to do nothing in a manner akin to learn helplessness. That's just a brilliant line for me, in my opinion. When yeah. we are learning from listening or watching, our minds are highly active, precisely. Uh, unless, of course, they are thinking about, uh, you know, Tottenham imploding against Arsenal, then that's a different story altogether. Let's uh, not have any, let's not, you know, let's not have any depressive analysis here. <laughs> it's supposed to be humorous and practical. Continue. Right. <laughs> so people will often learn more effectively from watching a model perform than from doing and performing that same action in the flesh. Okay, that's something that is interesting to me. I'm not so sure I agree, but I'll get you to unpack that statement in a moment. And yeah. although we note that learners tend need to be active, this does not mean being active in the physical sense of having to respond overtly. So can you unpack that for me? When we say people often learn more effectively from watching a model perform than from doing and performing that same action in the flesh, I need you to expound on that a little bit because it's just like going against everything that I've learned in the school of uh, becoming a beginning teacher. Oh, right. Yeah, well, I can do that through a very um, um, good example. Yeah. Um, I now have a Mac Air um, computer. I've never used Macintosh before, right? The nearest I've got to Macintosh is when it's raining and I put a coat on that's called a Macintosh, right? <laughs> so um, I've never used a Mac yeah, um, computer. And given that I um, was given one, um, I thought, well, um, I was go, I was going to uh, have a Chromebook instead. But anyway, I've got. To, I'll be honest with you. When I opened it up initially, um, 
my daughter sat up the structure and I was looking at it. I thought, I'm not going to like this. It just didn't look right. And I'm fiddling around with it. And I, I was almost ready to say, like, I can't be bothered, you know, sort of give it to someone else. I'll just get myself a Chromebook as, yep. as a backup to my computer. But fortunately, um, my daughter, who knows uh, a little bit about cognitive science, because um, she did read my book and um, has got a fairly decent grasp of some of the core principles. And what she did says, says, right, OK, let's start with the beginning. This is how you turn it on. This is how you turn I didn't even know this thing in the corner, this little apple, I think it was. I didn't know that was a stop, start button or this is the way you close it down. I, I would never... If I see something that says start, I start. If I see something that sees, uh, says stop, then I shoot that stop. Anyway, um, she started showing me some things, and I immediately said to her, I said, Adele, you're going too fast. So right. she slowed it down because to her, she was going slow. But to me, she was totally unfamiliar with the entity. Um, if I would have just been get told by a, a teacher, uh, play around with this Mac, I think after about 20 minutes, I would have given up and um, kind of been watching some football match or something. Anyway, so she starts, she did it in little steps. And gradually, I then had a bit of practice myself. And she was saying, yeah, that's correct. No, you've gone here. You should have gone there. Fine. Let's just go back. Anyway, uh, after about half an hour, I'd learned some key things. And I was then able, because I'd got, I'd got, the the key procedures where the menus are what this icon meant and the very fact that you've got all the things at the bottom and all you need to do is just click on one you don't need to close it down you can then just click on another and that comes up which is different from a pc so now um with some further instruction from my other daughter when i stayed with her I am actually getting there now now it was by watching someone listening to what they say asking questions seems to be agentically engaged in in that process but i needed to listen i needed to see so that i was able to model it without that direct instruction i would have just been playing around with it and probably getting quite frustrated so that's what that really means is that watching someone do it well particularly if they're explaining it and they're operating at the right pace to you and they allow you and invite you to ask questions when you're stuck um, or when you uh, simply see something interesting, um, that's that's the blend. It's not about being teacher-centred or student-centred. I hate this notion. All teaching, all facilitation, all training is essentially about helping students to learn. So th- this notion of teacher-centred or student-centred, again, is, a, I think, a bit of an anachronism. Okay, so contrast this for me. So when you say that is how a, a, a model, you know, you watch somebody model it, ask you specific questions, uh, you think about it, and then you do deliberate practice to enhance your own competency. That, to me, is active. Now, contrast this to something that is not active so that you don't actually learn. Is that possible? Or is it just by pure nature of just I watching think... somebody? Yeah. Go ahead. In situations, if you it's boring students don't see benefit any meaning in the learning and they're sitting there fantasizing about premier notion then that's passive equally if a teacher says right i want you now 
do activity and this activity is boring you're doing the activity chatting same thing that you were uh, thinking Mitchell so I, I've been on many building events where to build a bridge or a car with um paper um one of those clips paper clip yeah and the bits and bobs and yeah we're given an hour and people are this and it's competitive do a day in changi prison and that kind of day and then show you that that teamwork works well Really, do we need this? So this is the problem. It's almost like making us spend half an hour to discover what is obvious that um, doesn't need activity. It just needs um, clarification and then application in, in a meaningful task. If the task is not meaningful, yeah, you're active, but it's, it's, it's as bad as maybe... some activity that you don't see is meaningful you kind of have to do it right okay so i think uh, at the crux of that uh what you just said is and i want to go back to what you talk about in terms of cognitive processes uh and i'm going to state something that may be controversial but at the core of it is really being able to uh, supplement your demonstrations or your lectures, so to speak, with good questions. Uh, and questions can take many forms and serve different purposes. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, in fact, if you think about it, Mark, um, the questions, uh, the, the, we, we've used this example before in other contexts, which is not surprising, given that this is episode 51. But um, yeah, Anthony Robbins, the success coach, some people think he's brilliant, others don't. But he earns a lot of money, as I've noted before. And what he basically says is that thinking itself, the process of thinking is nothing but the process of asking and answering questions. Now, um, other other people have said very, very similar things, um, in, including uh, uh, Ellen Langer. And the, the basic point is this, that when we ask a question, it's because we don't fully understand something. There is a knowledge gap. We think we understand it, but we're not sure. Um, and... If the teacher can respond to the questions in appropriate ways, they can then scaffold um, that knowledge building process. In other words, provide the missing element, clear up the misconception with some examples, give the students something that they can connect to. It could be a short video. It could be something to read could be some kind of diagram right so that's one big aspect now equally um by providing students with questions that connect to the key concepts of what you you you're hoping that they're going to learn eventually gives them that nice structure so if i say to a student if we go back to one core principle is activating prior knowledge by asking the question what do you know about this topic uh, right away you're seeing their their thinking 
their knowledge levels, and that helps you to connect instruction to it. Equally, when you're asking questions to students, you are cueing those cognitive processes of thinking. So if you say to a student, right, I want you now to compare, and it could be something that you know students are interested in. We're going to compare whether we're going to buy a Samsung phone, uh, an Android-type phone, or an iPhone. Right away, by asking that question, can we now compare and contrast them? Students' brains are then saying, well, hold on a minute. Well, what's similar about the two? Well, they're both phones, right? We could go on. But what's different? Okay, these things are different. Uh, so what's the importance of this? What's the importance of it to me? What would be the importance to uh, me if I was working in this type of company, etc.? So that's questions are our activities. This is the thing about activities that we tend to think, projects or big problems to solve but thinking is the most basic and perhaps one of the most important activities and it's how we structure the thinking process through the types of questions let's analyze can we compare and contrast what influencing and interpretations can we make from these different data sources um how could we evaluate this what criteria that's such a good well-designed activity but to say to students well what do you can you comment on this yeah um uh, it, it's been a comment on it well what does that mean oh it looks all right um so the big point about any type of activity of which a question is the most basic um and the most powerful for building understanding is the question now Every type of activity, and we can talk about different types, must be designed in ways that connect the knowledge that's being um, negotiated or transferred for the students to um, take it on board, must be designed and facilitated in ways that connect to the student group. And that's the big skill is choosing the right activity uh, and if you have to design one designing the right activity and facilitating it with good communication skills and that's when we, and whether we talk about is it a teaching skill communication skills or a facilitation skill uh, both it applies to both i mean what is facilitation over teaching it's it's a good teacher can facilitate and a facilitator teaches as I say, okay, that's interesting that you think uh, that you that you say that. So, uh, so I just want to sum up very briefly, and uh, uh, and if you are listening to this, uh, and uh, and you are thinking what maybe I'm thinking, so it's important that maybe you hear this, and that is um, really for the teacher to make it active. It's not just you maybe uh, you know going on about your favorite pet topic, but it's also about pausing asking the right questions, giving students the opportunity to engage their cognitive processes, in this instance, maybe the thinking process. Uh, so that's when you ask good quality questions that help students to engage their critical thinking mindset. Uh, and also, and depending on what you're trying to achieve in terms of the learning outcomes, uh, link it to uh, possible type of activities. So I'm going to pause here for a second. Is that an accurate summary so far? Then? Yeah, it is, because um, there are many different types of activities, questions being one, yep. but we can give students very specific performance tasks. I mean, for example, um, 
I've observed many catering lecturers, teachers, and what they will do is they will demonstrate something and break it up. Uh, and then the students have an activity to actually make the cake. Yeah. And while they're making the cake, the teacher has to be very mindful of um, are they doing it using the right technique, the right ingredients, etc. So there are specific performance tasks and that applies to uh, motor, you know, repairing a car or um, writing an essay. They're all performance tasks. And the same thing, you know, when we think of writing an essay, that is a performance task because they've got to plan it, they've got to structure it, and they've actually got to do the writing, you know, the typing, that kind of thing. And the same with a quiz is an activity. You give students projects. Projects is just basically a big performance task, right? Simulations, we can give them a case study, etc. All of those kind of things, a role play. These are activities. So we, we need to make sure that we have a variety of activities, but most importantly, that the activities will support the specific learning activities. Uh, sorry, the particular learning outcomes for what they're doing. So that's one of the key things that's important with activities is to choose an appropriate activity or a blend of activities for the student learning outcomes and the student profile. Then the next question is how you design those different activities. And as we know that we did a lot of work in implementing the thinking curriculum. And what we needed to do was to make sure that when we designed activities, those activities had both what's called content and construct validity in the sense that the activity would enable and require that students apply the key concepts that they're learning. That's the knowledge domains, if you like, but also use the cognitive um, uh, processes that help to build understandings. That's the analysis, the compare and contrast, the inference and interpretation, evaluation, because this is the big point and it's not noted. And uh, I kind of worked it out through a lot of research and it's consistent with the notion that um, if students are engaging uh, with the right knowledge, the key concepts, with good cognitive process, it's knowledge plus thinking that builds understanding. And the outcome of all of this is to have a good memory neurologically wired. So there's a nice little um, sort of equation for you. Thinking plus knowledge equals understanding. And all of that is, is, is part of building memory um, from working memory into long-term memory. And it fits in with Daniel Willingham's great quote that I like. Uh, and perhaps um, that's what makes him so famous. He can actually kind of come up with such insightful stuff is that, yeah, uh, memory in a nutshell, I'll, keep, I'll simplify it. He, he says memory is the residue of thought. What he's saying ultimately is that memory is what's left after students engage with good thinking and the appropriate knowledge um, domain concepts. Um, it's, it's, it's almost elegantly simple. Um, yeah. If we can get students to engage, and that's where teaching is so important. Teachers must teach the key concepts, not loads of factual knowledge and get them to do activities that are esoteric, right? Um, to the learning outcomes. So it's, it's it's about the knowledge, the right type of thinking and facilitating that to build understanding. And that's what we want. And going back to um, Atty's point about 
there's not such a thing as passive learning. If students are listening to the teacher, watching the teacher, they are active. When they actually then do the application, they have to build something, design something, draw something, cook a cake, fix a circuit, design the circuit. Uh, that's active. So active learning is, is not just getting students to do different types of activities. Look, you can do a role play or put people in the simulation. If it's not interesting, they don't seem as relevant. Yeah, they're doing the activity, but inside they're not cognitively engaged. So you could say that's passive. Um, of course, if students are not interested in what the teacher's talking about and they're disengaged, that's equally passive. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I think what, what is also uh, important for me as I listen to this is while you are planning for an activity, firstly, number one, the activity has got to make sense. It's got to be connected to what your students are learning. I think that's the first point. But more importantly, it's not like, okay, uh, I've, I've done talking to you. Uh, here's the activity. Go forth and prosper while I sit down at my table and I drink a cup of coffee and then I'll just watch you do what you're supposed to be doing. I think this is where the teacher or the lecturer themselves has to be active. And that is moving around, looking at it, asking good questions uh, to, stimulate the to stimulate the student learning further. Uh, and not just telling, uh, but also maybe, you know, demonstrating and getting them to look at what the mistakes are and getting them to rectify it on the spot and then repeating it so that the teacher can see and give even more or more effective or deeper feedback. Uh, and I think that is really the key towards uh, active learning. And that can also be done in a lecture. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're spot on. The notion in the lecture, it's 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 one way communication. It's teacher centred. It's not teacher centred. It's teacher controlled and managed. And this notion of the teacher being the guide on the side, um, as opposed to the sage on the stage, are both very naive things because. Um, yeah, teachers are supposed to have good domain knowledge in areas that they're teaching, but that doesn't mean that they are absolute expert, some kind of sage. So that's a little bit kind of fluffy. And um, this notion of the guide on the side, well, how much guidance? If, if, if the students are completely lost, what, what do you do? I mean, to me, if students are totally lost, I want to pull them all together. I want to say, well, OK, look, you're all lost. Let's identify what you're lost in and, and build some key knowledge so that you are then able to at least think about the topic and then further down the line start to apply it. Um, it, it makes perfect sense to me that that's the way to go. So these notions of teachers are now um, the guide on the side and not the stage on the side just makes the profession look rather amateuristic. Right. Okay. So which brings us then to maybe uh, diving a little bit deeper to more practical ideas. So we know questions are important. Uh, and I think we did an episode on the different types of questions and thinking. We might want to revisit yeah. that in episode 52. Uh, let's, let's discuss this uh, offline. Uh, but I just wanted to uh, hone in on uh, in part of your book that you wrote for evidence-based creative teaching, where you talk about specific activities for active learning. Uh, and, and I wanted to unpack this. So maybe the first question that uh, you have addressed in your book is, what are the different types of activities that can be used to creatively enhance student learning. 
uh, you have put specific learning tasks, quizzes, competitions, which is interesting. Uh, and I got you to explain that a little bit. Projects, visits, forums, simulations, cases, work experience, brain game slash puzzles, experiments, role play, and then you you caveat that by saying almost unlimited. So I want you to explain this in two ways. Number one, what exactly is uh, how can competitions actually help? Uh, as uh, in terms of student learning, that's number one. Because I've read enough uh, papers to tell me that competitions can be bad. Uh, and I just wanted you to expound on that. Uh, and number uh, two, yeah, yeah. two, to really think about um, when, uh, you know, when we say uh, work experience, how can we do that in a classroom that maybe, uh, yeah, so how, how can we bring the idea of work experience into a classroom? Okay, and let's pick up the, the this area of competitions is is debated, and there are different paradigms on this. So let me just give you a analogy, right? Um, me and you have both played football, and we've coached a bit of football, and um, we both played for the um, the polytechnic side, if you remember. Yeah, we were we were two of the best players as well. By um, that's an objective fact. Okay. <laughs> now, um, but if we think about it, we used to sometimes play in tournaments and sometimes we played socially on a Friday evening. Can you remember that? Yep. Now, the, the, the point is this, that if we're all playing to enjoy and to develop our football skills, then you're not thinking about the best players must be on the field for the maximum amount of time, right? Yeah. Okay. Everybody, the idea is it's a social game. Whether we win or not is, is very secondary. As long as everybody gets a bit of exercise and gets to kick the ball around and um, then we go to the coffee shop and have some, you know, have some local food. You know, that was the kind of thing. However, when we're playing in the actual tournaments, then the, 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 the mentality is that, well, let's try and win these games because we're in the tournament. Yep. so And that's more competitive. So this competition business is we want, we life is competitive, you know, for stu but this, this notion of every student who plays must get the equal participation award. Um, I don't think that's actually good to do too often. I think it's very, it, not very, but I think it can actually be detrimental because in, in the real world of work, some people get promoted, maybe rightly or wrongly, but it's competitive. Um, you know, when promotions come up, it's competitive. When you go to um, perhaps get a mortgage and that's getting very competitive now in in the uk with interest rates and things that competition is inherent when you're looking for say a potential wife or a husband or boyfriend girlfriend that's competitive chris emsworth um i think um as the edge on me even you on uh, perhaps finding um um attractive partners so competition is an essential part of life and i think it's really important that um, that is um, catered for in an educational setting. So to have competitions where students know, look, in this situation is competitive and some of you are going to be better at this point in time. It's how you manage it. For the kid who doesn't do well, it's not about saying to him, oh, well, you, you, you weren't, you, you, you're not good enough. But to say to that um, student, look, if you want to be in competitions at different levels, higher levels, then you need to learn more. In fact, it can be very motivating. 
So I, you know, this this whole thing about competition is is that it's bad. Is is doesn't really work with me. Equally, we want people to be cooperative, but um, because in life you you can be competitive, but sometimes you have to work together with people. So if you're working for a company, you've got to. Co- cooperate with your team members in competition with others so both learning to cooperate and the skills involved good team working as well as having a a an understanding and disposition to be competitive um, and to do what is necessary within the rules of the the game um you know, like in football, I mean, we, we want players to be hard, but we want them to be fair. We don't want them going out and trying to break someone's leg because it gives you a competitive advantage. So there's <laughs> ethics that come into, and, you know, and remember teaching is not just about content. It's about building values. And one value is to, uh, to be conscientious, to be resilient, to work hard, uh, but also to have integrity and fairness. So, that's my frame on the competition thing. The work experience, well, look, um, even in schools, it's possible um, to work with local industry to give students some work experience. Equally, it's possible to have people from the world of work coming in and getting students to do some sort of simulated practice. Uh, and it's also possible to give students meaningful activities that resemble real-world tasks rather than abstract things. Oh, well, let's give them something to do because it'll it'll um, it'll keep them active. But um, if it's not meaningful, then it goes back to the same point. It's as passive and as um, and it's 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 as big a sin. You know, meaningless active learning is is probably worse than a boring lecture i'd rather be in a boring lecture than have to do a meaningless activity right okay so that's the first one Uh, then what about how do we bring work experience into a classroom if we don't and i'm not referring to things like internships because that obviously is work experience um but let's say uh, how, how can we bring elements of work experience into a classroom or maybe even into a lecture so that that's the challenge Well, I I mean, I think what we have to say is that we have an old portfolio of activities, as we've just mentioned, and some of those um, in practice may not be particularly viable. I mean, working um, in Singapore Polytechnic, we were able to provide students with extensive work experiences yeah the internship being the big one but there was also industrial placements we when i joined the polytechnic we actually had a teaching factory on campus based on the german model of learning called petra so that's more easier in the classroom in secondary schools um um, we can have work experience in the sense that we have computers and students can do work simulations and design simulations on computers. Certainly um, in PE, um, what they do um, on the sports field in the school, if they're playing football or whatever other sport is, <laughs> real life work experience, if they're going to go on to do some professional sporting thing. Uh, we used to... Um, in the olden days, I don't think they do that now. We used to dissect rats and rabbits and various things in biology and do various things in chemistry that reflected work experience. So there are there are ways in which it can be done, but maybe not as extensive or as authentic as the real world. Right. Okay. Cool. So let's uh, look at that. Uh, so let, let's go on to the second part which is what is important in designing and managing activities. 
So maybe there's there's quite a fair bit, but uh, maybe can I just get you to pick your top three? Well, certainly the activity's got to be relevant to the learning goals, the specific learning outcomes, right? I think that's that that that's given. Now to make the activity that is um, attainable for the students, and sometimes you have to make an activity that has different levels of complexity, and that's where the skill of differentiation comes in. But the activity should be achievable with reasonable effort. It's often referred to as the Goldilocks activity, a little bit like the notion that in the universe, planets that um, are a similar distance um, from a sun that's similar to our sun, perhaps is more likely to um, create the ecological conditions, perhaps over millions of years, um, to support life. So that's the key thing, relevant to the learning outcomes, challenging but achievable with effort. And the other thing is, I would say, is that the activity, to varying degrees, depending on what is being learned, should engage the students with some critical thinking skills, such as analysis, compare and contrast, inference, interpretation, maybe evaluation. Other things are to do ultimately, um, not with the design of activities, but um, you've got to have um, an assessment system that can validly and reliably and effectively assess what you're going to learn. But for the design, relevance of outcomes, um, challenging and achievable and cognitively engaging. Right. OK, thanks for sharing that one. And we'll do the last bit where we will wrap up. Uh, and that is uh, where can I get relevant activities that will be challenging and achievable for the students that I teach so that I can really engage in meaningful active learning? Well, Mark, um, <laughs> I can throw that one back to you. I mean, a lot of teachers, I mean, historically, you know, would be in the school and there'd be some resources and they'll go and get those. But today, with the internet, um, it's possible to get so many uh, resources and to be able to design activities, customise things to different students. Um, it should not be a problem, really. And also, one can be proactive and talk to other um, faculty. Um, it used to be the case that teachers, and I think this still may go on uh, to some extent in some schools, I hope it is limited, but yeah, teachers would guard their resources and I can understand why they spent a lot of time making some overlay transparency um, and to just give it away and to, to another teacher who's not bothering but just going around scrounging stuff um, um, today um, teachers are generally working in more collaborative teams so you can you can share resources different teachers can produce different types of activities that's relevant to different aspects of the curriculum and um, with the internet and if one contacts industry people may uh, come in and bring some activities so there's plenty of ways to get activities now but it's nice if you design your own that's very specific to um, the student group and the outcomes because it communicates to students that you're really interested in their learning. But teachers are busy, so very often we have to source around. But there's lots of sources. It's just a question of being a bit proactive. Right. Okay. Uh, I, I would agree. So uh, if I can share how I would do it, uh, I realise I get quite a lot of uh, information by 
following other uh, activities, following other educators and teachers on social media, such as uh, Twitter and Instagram, because sometimes they do post some brilliant activities and ideas, uh, and sometimes even sharing their lesson plans on such uh, platforms, which I think uh, really helps uh, me to think about uh, how I can do my active learning a bit better. I'm still finding uh, new ways to ask good quality questions, uh, other than the fact that some of my students hate it when I ask them such questions, uh, because they say it forces them to think, uh, and I go away... The brain because... is not designed for thinking, as yep. Daniel Willingham says, just like reasons why there are so many people um, who are obese. But, um, they know that going to the gym and doing exercise works, but it takes effort, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, sometimes people have to be pushed, don't they? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, so I think that that's that's really for me to hone my own skills, and and, and I do hope that you know, uh, as we think about how we do our questioning and how we are deploying active learning, uh, if there's one takeaway that I would hope our listeners can do is uh, really this: uh, don't just plan activity for activity sake. And what that means is, once you implement the activity. It doesn't mean that you take a break. I think that's when you even become a bit more, uh, for want of a better word, and active, where you really go and find out about how students are interacting with the activity, uh, pose a deep thinking question, get them to practice uh, metacognition, I would say, uh, and get them to critically think about how they should respond to your question, uh, and more importantly, linking it to maybe new learning or past experiences that, that or past concepts that they've learned, to help make them understand uh, or have better clarity in terms of how things are connected. So I think that that's for me as the next stage of my teaching career uh, is really making that connections and not just delivering that content. And I know many, and don't get me wrong, I know many uh, teachers, lecturers don't just deliver content. But if you are looking for a way to really enhance your teaching to the next level, that is something that I would challenge you to do. Would that be fair then? Yeah, that's a great summary. All of those things are essential, particularly the notion that when students are given an activity and they're working on it, that's when good sensory acuity on the part of the teacher comes into play. Because if you are listening latently, you don't need to be going, to, you know, putting your head in every student's face sort of thing. But if you are observing and listening, you are then in the position to make good professional judgment. If you see students are progressing nicely, they're doing stuff, then leave them alone. Equally, uh, if they're stuck, you need to intervene and do all the things that you just outlined. So yeah, the teacher has got to be perhaps more active, more metacognitive in terms of being situationally aware when students are actually doing the activities that are being set. That's absolutely uh, the case. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that would end our first segment. Perfect. Uh, and now let's go back to my favorite segment, which is uh, part two, where we really talk about something that we have read, something we have watched, or maybe even something that we have used in terms of a tool or an uh, you know or or uh, app that might help with uh, our listeners in uh, helping to enhance their teaching and learning. So you want to go first, then? Anything that you have well, found? Well, yeah. Funny enough. Um, Having to learn um, this week, um, like started the week before, I to use the um, Macintosh computer. Um, I'm coming to like it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm coming to like it. And also, um, 
the other thing I, I'm in the process of learning, I haven't got there yet, uh, is the use of Google Classrooms as I um, need to use that as a learning um, platform, if you like, um, in a particular situation. So uh, it, it does it does bring up all the things that we talk about that i look at it initially and think oh there's a lot of stuff here what's what does steam mean what does this mean what does that mean but i know don't panic is start to look at the whole see where stuff is and then let's take apart what does this tab mean what does this mean what does that mean that you're always doing the jigsaw um when you're learning sometime something there can be a small easy jigsaw it can be a big complicated one i remember when i had a colleague this is about 40 years ago who when you went to his house for dinner he was doing a big red jigsaw and when i say red every piece was red the same <laughs> and you weren't allowed to leave until you i used to dread that um, sometimes I'd be there half an hour trying to put one piece in the jigsaw. So <laughs> that's a difficult jigsaw. So um, learning stuff, ultimately, it's it, it goes back to those basic premises. You've got to know what something is, understand how it works, how parts are connected to each other, and what the big picture is. And that's why teaching the good critical thinking skills is so important, because that focuses focuses the mind on the learning that you've got to have and to recognize that you can't just grab it all at once because of memory constraints learn the, look at the big picture learn some of the key bits check that you learn it do the repeated practice and gradually you start to get a better picture and it's like doing the jigsaw as you get a better picture the remaining parts get easier to put in okay perfect so I want to share this plan. Um, and while it's not really free, I just think it'll be something interesting for people to try out. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's called peergrade.io. Um, I believe, I'm, I'm not sure if I've shared it before, but as I'm rereading it, I don't think I have. Uh, but I think this, this is a, a very good application to look at uh, peer grading. I think that's something that we have talked about before. Uh, and I think one important feature here is uh, PeerGrade is an online platform to facilitate peer feedback sessions with students uh, while easing the load for teachers. So uh, how does it work? The teacher really sets up an assignment, the students submit their work, and then students get to review each another, and then students engage with their feedback uh, and then improve the submissions of their work. And at the same time, the teacher has complete overview so that he or she can look at how students are giving feedback and also contributing towards that feedback process. So I do know that uh, peer feedback does play an important role in student learning. Unfortunately, it's not really free. I'm looking at the pricing. It says here uh, you can experience the, the product for 30 days uh, and then you can decide if you want to pay for it. Uh, so I, I would say give it a go. I'll give it a go. Uh, have a look at it. Uh, and I think uh, what I found here is looking for a completely free peer review solution. Then they have actually come up with another product called uh, EduFlow. So what I would suggest is I'll put the links in the show notes. Uh, you should try out P-grade, uh, P-grade, 
peer grade for free for the first 30 days. Uh, and then after that, try out EduFlow and see if EduFlow also meets your needs because that one is actually free. Okay, so that's something for you guys to try out. So, yeah, and that really essentially ends today's uh, podcast. And as always, if you want to write to us, please do so at evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. Once again, it is evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. So then, what's the plan for the rest of the week? Well, yeah, I'm very busy. I'm doing quite a lot of um, sort of consultancy work. And um, I've got to put a big shift in, but I will be watching, um, obviously, my own team, Tottenham, play against the arch enemy, Arsenal. And I'll also watch um, your boys take on the glamorous neighbours, as compared (laughs) to what Ferguson called the noisy Noisy neighbours. The boys in blue, Manchester City. So I will watch the football matches, do some work, go to the gym and... um, that's there'll be no sunbathing. <laughs> you can do that when so you come to Singapore. Yeah, you that's can do that when you come to Singapore in January. Yeah, yeah okay. in fact, um, I will definitely. I, I'm looking forward to it so much. It's going to be brilliant catching up with all you guys and um, the vibrancy of Singapore, my favourite um, place in the world. I, I, I confess, as an Englishman, um, I'm probably more Singaporean, and that is a big admission, but. I'm quite proud to say that. Um, cool. I think um, it's it's. I had 25 years there. It was absolutely brilliant. It was magic. Perfect. Okay. So thank you. So take care, everyone. Have a good rest of the week wherever you are, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. So take care and goodbye. Ciao.